Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 10. And, and uh, as our scripture reading tonight, it says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content." But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into which, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Amen. There are uh, several different resources, a number of different resources that uh, take these first two verses and uh, do an entire sermon, an entire chapter on the topic of slavery. Now, I didn't really feel like doing that. Uh, We are going to touch on it, but I wanted to look at this entire section in, in the context of contentment. That's certainly a major theme. And so kind of my three points are contentment in a difficult work situation, to try to apply it to our lives a little bit, Uh, then um, contentment, maybe the lack of contentment uh, in doctrinal truth, and then the third is contentment in our financial resources. The middle one may not seem like it gets connected to finances, although it probably is. The false teachers who are causing all this trouble doctrinally think that godliness is a means of gain that is financial gain and um, Paul's going to say no that's uh, not the case but I want to take up these first two verses for a minute and um, the the um, the whole topic is exhortation to slaves on how they ought to deal with their slave owners there's no Exhortation to the slave owners here. It's just to uh, to the slaves. And I want to make a categorical statement in, in my view. The Bible does not support the institution of slavery. Did slavery exist in the time of the Bible or many periods throughout history? That's true. <clears throat> Did the Bible commands, <clears throat> does the Bible ever command masters to free their slaves? Well, no. You uh, probably don't find that. 
Uh, we will look at a verse where Paul tells slaves that if they have the opportunity <clears throat> to free themselves to do so, does it tell slaves, other than that one verse, to leave their masters or rebel against their slavery? No, it does not. And there are those who would uh, reason from that uh, because those things aren't true, that then by Im- implicitly the Bible approves the, um, the institution of slavery. And what I would say, what I would commend to you, the thought is that the Bible is dealing with people in the situations that they're in. And the exhortations are to people to deal with uh, the situations that they face as challenging as they may not be. Paul has been, been given all kinds of grief because when he's writing to Philemon and he's sending his runaway slave Onesimus back to him, and we find in other letters of Paul Onesimus traveling with him, but Paul has been heavily criticized that he didn't tell Philemon, now you need to free uh, Onesimus. Paul did tell Philemon, I'm sending him back as a brother and receive him like you would receive me. Now that's a pretty weighty exhortation. That means he would need to treat him pretty fairly and kindly and not punish him uh, though he was a runaway slave. But at the same time, that doesn't, nece- that doesn't imply, I don't think, the, um, the fact that um, th- the approval of slavery. So just a couple things. Um, I want to mention a couple books. <clears throat> I came across this book a little while ago. It's called A Candle Against the Dark. And it's the story of the RPCNA, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, which exists to this day. It's uh, one of the oldest Presbyterian denominations in our country. And it's the story of their uh, active work in abolition from really the middle 1700s, roughly around in there, uh, all the way up through the uh, American Civil War. <clears throat> and it's a very fascinating story. They're a sister church to us. Uh, they, uh, we have fraternal relations with them. And it's a fascinating story just to hear their, the account of their efforts to try to end the trafficking in slaves. And a really worthwhile look. Well, after I read that, I thought, you know, I really need to read... I've had this on my library, but I haven't read it. It's R.L. Dabney's A Defense of Virginia and the South. And the contrast is quite significant. The first third or so of the book is a very fascinating story about the history of Virginia, which taught me a lot of things I didn't know. The middle third is where he goes through Scripture and tries to defend the institution of slavery from Scripture and in the, the last section that I'm mostly way through, part way through, he's trying to explain or counter some of the, not biblical arguments, but the ethical arguments against slavery 
<clears throat> one of the points is that all the accusations of the brutality in slavery are largely not true. And so it's fascinating reading that. It still boggles my mind that someone so notable, except that he's a man of his times, would defend that. Now, I don't want to discourage you from reading Dabney. Dabney is superb. He's an excellent theologian, uh, plain spoken, if you like that. Um, he'll, he'll tell you straight the way he thinks it is, but, uh, but well worth reading. So don't, don't let my comment about that book in any way discourage you from reading Dabney. If you get a chance to <clears throat> read him, he's uh, really worthwhile. But um, I wouldn't support him in his case in this particular, personally, in this particular book. Has interesting things to say, and it's in some sense worth reading just to hear his point of view. But uh, before we get too much further into this, turn back to 1 Timothy 1, uh, when Paul is talking about the law. <clears throat> says, now we know that the law, excuse me, 1 Timothy 1, verse 8, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And then he goes on into some of the law. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immortal, immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, literally men-stealers. Uh, the, uh, Paul couldn't be clearer against uh, kidnapping and um, perhaps... Someone as Dabney would say, well, they didn't kidnap them. Someone else kidnapped them. They just purchased them when they got here. <clears throat> but nevertheless, Paul clearly teaches against man-stealing. That ought not to be. And he describes it as those who are lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, and profane. So I don't think we can say Paul um, approves of Slavery is an institution, though he addresses slaves and how they should live within the dilemma that they're in. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. <clears throat> Verse 20. He says... <clears throat> Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called, do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. And so Paul isn't necessarily approving of the institution of slavery, but he's talking to slaves on how they can conduct themselves in that situation. The same as when Paul writes Romans 13. He's not approving of the ungodly imperial government of Rome, but he is telling us how do we conduct ourselves when we're in an evil government. Uh, I think he would say a similar phrase, if we can 
get rid of it, by all means do so. But he would be telling us how are we to conduct ourselves and live in a very terrible situation. And so Paul's not approving of these things, I don't think. But he is directing his attention to how do we conduct ourselves in dark times. Uh, These slaves were members of the church, as were their masters. They are brothers in the Lord, he tells us in these verses. How are they conduct themselves in this dark time? Well, they are to um, work hard, do a good job, not disrespect their masters if they happen to be Christians. You see, it would be very easy for a, a Christian servant <clears throat> to think, well, my master's a Christian. He ought to be nicer to me, better to me. He ought to let me free me, figure out a way to uh, loose me from my bonds. But Paul's not focused on that. He's saying, now, don't let the fact that he's a Christian uh, deter you from honoring God Uh, And he says the reason you need to do that, even in your labor in a difficult situation, is so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Uh, Many of you have been, maybe are, in work situations that are not good. Uh, You're not a slave. Uh, Thankfully, for the most part, you might be a slave to your financial need, but for the most part in our country... When you are in a difficult work situation, you can have the, you do have the freedom and hopefully the ability to make your situation better and find another place of employment. But while you're there, you serve, uh, you do the best job you can. Uh, and so that the name of God may be, uh, and the teaching may not be reviled. You don't want the teaching to be reviled. I sometimes talk about one of my jobs in seminary when I worked for a moving company. And the boss, we we would work sometimes in the warehouse and out on the truck. And you always wished you were out on the truck because uh, the boss wasn't there. When you were in the warehouse, the boss was there. And he was this really mean uh, man. And he would do everything he could to humiliate you. Uh, and belittle you. Now, I was in a relatively good situation because I was only working, I was, I was only going to be working for the summer. So I knew I could get out of it, or I knew I was going to get out of it in a couple months. You can pretty much put up with anything if you know it's going to end. And I knew it was going to end, but at the same time, I needed to um, preserve my mind and heart uh, and just do the best job I could, even though he was the kind of guy who would say, move this over there. And then you do that. And then he'd come out and he'd be screaming at you. You blankety, blankety, blank. Why did you move it over there? Well, you didn't dare tell him because you told me to. He then would tell you, now move it back, move it over here. And you just... You just worked. You just did it and uh, persevered. And uh, I think to some degree, we had a level of respect by the end of the summer uh, because by God's grace, I never let him get to me. 
Uh, so Paul's exhortation, I think, to the slaves is the exhortation all of us in certain situations need to see. The exhortation is to be content in our current situation and serve God regardless of the difficulties. If we can improve our situation, there's nothing wrong with that. You ought to do that. But if you're in that situation uh, and it's not, you know, physical abuse or endangering your life, well, then serve as carefully and faithfully as you can. The second area of contentment or the lack of it is in verses three to five, where he brings up again these false teachers uh, they, um, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, Paul had just at the end of verse two, it said, teach and urge these things. That was part of his work as a pastor. But if anyone teaches a different doctrine and doesn't agree with the sound word or the sound doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he, they describe him. He's puffed up, conceited, understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy. And this is the category of people that Paul has been regularly telling Timothy to deal with in Ephesus. You have these false teachers and they become arrogant and conceited and they're causing disruption. They disturb the life of the church. They uh, understand nothing, Paul says. They have this unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. You see, it's not that they're wanting to argue biblical truth or defend it uh, or help promote it. They just like a fight. They just want a battle. They like to argue and um, not in a helpful way. Uh, It's one thing to enjoy theological discussions but these, these people aren't enjoying theological discussions. They just want to fight. They just want to argue. And they're arrogant. They think they're the only ones that know anything. Um, when you try to have a conversation with them and then they just go off and, and you realize, I'm not going to be able to get a word in edgewise. So you pretty much wait till there's a point of exit and then you get out of there as quickly as you can because it's not going to be profitable. There's no constructive conversation uh, that's going to go on in there. So they are not content with sound doctrine. They're only interested in controversy. So that's where I connected to the whole theme of contentment. And uh, he's going to get, Paul's going to get into the whole thought of our contentment with our finances. But these people who are Promoting envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and friction among people uh, are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Horrible descriptions. Imagining, and here's the transition point, imagining that godliness is a means of great gain. So that perhaps they take up a position, could be in leadership in a church, maybe a pastor, maybe a preacher, maybe a traveling preacher as it would have been in that case in that day. But the the reason they've done it uh, is not to promote sound biblical doctrine that has stood the test of time. The reason they're doing it is because uh, they think that they can get financial gain from that. Uh, here we might put into this 
category some of the um, TV preachers we've seen over the years. And they teach some really abominable truth uh, to get financial gain. To appeal to people to send in their money. And uh, I have great and intense anger for many of these because especially when they appeal to the retired and um, the uh, those with meager they're on fixed income meager income in their home they're um, Christians and they get taken in by the appeal of these charlatans and they send in their meager funds so that guy can have three planes and two mansions and exalt himself. And the judgment of God on such people is going to be very, very severe. And Paul is uh, exhorting Timothy uh, to, to deal with these. He's been that been exhorting him throughout this, this letter You need to deal with these people. But he takes that uh, point. They think godliness is a means to great gain. Then Paul turns his sights in his message of contentment onto our attraction with finances and contentment with what we have. And he begins with making the comment in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And you see the point that he's underscoring. These other people, these disturbers of the peace of the church, they think godliness will bring them gain, financial gain. And what Paul is teaching us is that godliness is the gain. Uh, We don't need the finances. I mean, it's... Obviously, we need finances to live and manage and so forth. And it's not that financial stability is a bad thing. He's not saying any of that. But what he's trying to draw our attention to is we don't need godliness to get financial gain. Godliness in itself is the gain. That's what's valuable for us because it's valuable not only for this life, but it's valuable for the life to come. Uh, A Christian does not have to be financially self-sufficient because he is Christ-sufficient. He finds his sufficiency in Christ and Christ alone. And Greek philosophy would teach uh, that a man who had all his resources within himself was the complete man. And Paul is telling us, no, none of us have all the resources within ourselves. We are self-deficient, not self-sufficient. And godliness is the gain that we need. Uh, Disconnect robs us of that joy of godliness. Contentment with that godliness is the gain that we need in our life. And then he goes on to spell out uh, support for his point. Why is it that godliness with contentment is the gain that we need to 
pursue? Well, he gives us three reasons why this is true, that we can pursue godliness with contentment, and that be our main focus. The first is, essentially, you can't take it with you. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Um, One author writes, these are two undeniable, unchangeable truths about human possessions. Nothing in, nothing out. Every person who has ever lived enters and exits the world the same way. All belongings must be checked at the graveside. Uh, You never uh, see someone being buried with a U-Haul traveling behind them. It's all got to stay here. And whatever they have in the Lord is what they'll have beyond uh, this life. And we, we get reminders of this throughout Scripture. And, and God said to Adam, for you are dust and dust you shall return. Uh, some funeral um, ceremonies have the words ashes to ashes, dust to dust, a reminder you know, that we came from nothing, we came from dirt, and we're going to go back to the earth. Uh, Job reflected this. He said, "Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return." I didn't have anything when I came into this world. I won't have anything when I leave. It's whatever I have in the Lord that's significant. Uh, the psalmist says, "Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases." For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. And we could go on and on and on. The reminders in the Bible that um, we need to be content with God because that's our gain. Whatever we gain in this earth, and there's nothing wrong with gaining uh, some measure of uh, stability and help financially, but that's not going to go with us. Our treasure is with the Lord. The uh, second point that uh, Paul gives us for why godliness with contentment is great gain is that um, we need to say it's enough. Uh, in verse 8, but if we have food and clothing with these, will we, we will be content. Uh, you and I need to cultivate the idea that um, food and clothing and clothing is also used for the idea of shelter. So food and shelter if we have that in this life, if we're able to lead, live a somewhat comfortable life, then we need to say that's enough. Uh, Jesus teaches us to not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. The people in this world run after these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness And all these things will be added to you. We need to cultivate contentment because and realize whatever we have in this world um, is enough uh, as it comes from the hand of God. In um, the fourth petition, the shorter catechism asks, what do we pray for in the fourth petition, the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer? In the fourth petition, which is give us this day our daily bread, we pray that of God's free gift we may receive a competent portion of the good things of this life 
and enjoy his blessings with them. Uh, John Stott says, possessions are only the traveling luggage of time. They are not the stuff of eternity. And it would be sensible, therefore, to travel light. So we, God gives us and we appreciated it and we're thankful for it. Paul's already encouraged us to do that. We don't have to be ascetics. We don't have to <clears throat> deny all the joys of this life. But we um, are content in what God gives us. And we give thanks to him and enjoy all the things uh, that he has given to us. Uh, Turn to Philippians chapter 4. Some of you are expecting that sooner or later I would get us there. Here Paul talks about the secret of contentment. And just... um, Picking it up for in verse 11, Philippians 4, 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am <clears throat> to be content. <clears throat> I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Here's the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, what that means, the focus of that is that um, Christ helps us to be content and thankful for the, um, the things that he's given us in this life. And our contentment it ultimately is satisfied in Christ. Well, the third reason Paul gives for saying godliness with contentment is the gain, is the, the danger uh, that sometimes comes with, with gain, financial gain. In verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So we have verse 10 is perhaps sometimes, maybe often, mistranslated. It's not money that's the root of all evil. It's the love of money. It's the desire for things, and perhaps we could say the inordinate desire for things. Uh, there are those who desire to be rich. Uh, and it's, this is not a con- condemnation for trying to better yourself. That's really, that's not it. There's, there's no reason you can't pursue improving your situation in this life. Uh, the, the danger, the temptation, the snare is that you plunge into that uh, without regard for godliness, without regard for contentment, and you, you, you look at that as the gain, uh, that financial improvement, that financial, the, the riches, that's the gain. That The danger is the snare of seeing that as the gain. That's not the gain. Uh, the love of money, it's not, money is not the gain, and the love of money is the snare that draws you away from the Lord and it uh, p- 
pierces you through with many pangs. Riches and wealth can be helpful and Christians can use that to great benefit, to glorify God and to bless God's people. That can be a good thing. But with wealth and with riches comes burdens too. And without the spirit of God in you, that wealth can become a a chain, a ball and chain that's weighing you down and making life in some ways very miserable. Uh, You have to have contentment with that wealth. Um, You would regularly read stories of some of the very rich and famous and you might look at their outward circumstances and think, wow, that's a really nice house, a nice car, and they sure seem comfortable. But if you could look for one minute in their family, you would realize they're horribly messed up. Uh, their, their lives are in a shambles. You and I, we only see the outside. And... Uh, I don't read a lot about Hollywood, but there's divorces and there's broken families and these uh, drug addiction. And it doesn't matter how much money they have, it pierces them through with many a trouble. And so it's not that God is advocating poverty, as that's the good thing. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying you need to be alert to the danger of seeking after wealth for wealth's sake. And realize that godliness with contentment is the gain. And if God adds to that some blessing and some measure of uh, good circumstances, then that's great. Enjoy that. Thank God for it. Use it for his glory. But don't uh, get rid of your contentment. Uh, the, uh, The wounds that it makes... Uh, of wealth makes us pretty terrible. So uh, one early preacher, John Chrysostom, in the early church, he said, desires are thorns, and as when one touches thorns, he gores his hand and gets him wounds so that he falls into these lusts, uh, these wounds. So he that falls into these lusts will be wounded by them and pierce his soul with grace. So the calling of God through Paul in this passage is to cultivate contentment. Contentment in difficult situations that we may face ourselves in. Uh, Contentment in sound biblical doctrine. We don't need to have the latest fanciful um, theological study. We need to stick, as uh, the Bible says, to the old paths. Let's stay with the things that have stood the test of time. That's enough. We don't need to be creative in that sense. And to be content, uh, cultivate contentment in the idea of our financial gain and realize godliness with contentment is the gain. And the other is just um, extra blessings from God if he chooses to give them to us. So may you and I cultivate contentment in our lives and experience the blessedness of his peace. Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, your word. Thank you for its guidance to us in dealing with 
some of the challenges that come in our way, maybe a dark situation at work, maybe um, wanting to um, improve our situation, but perhaps inordinately so. And we have all these challenges in our life, and we ask, oh, Lord, that you would uh, help us to cultivate contentment and peace and rest in you and know that knowing you is uh, the greatest treasure and uh, whatever else is added is uh, surely extraneous to that core true that core blessing help us to uh, know that and pursue that in our lives we pray in Jesus name amen